Heavenly Father, as we think about those words we just said, that prayer we just offered up to you, that you indeed sanctify us, you set us apart, you put us on the path toward holiness, and you do it with your word. Through your word that you have revealed to us, Lord, you lead us not into temptation. You deliver us from the path of evil and from the power of the evil one. We know this is true, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Give us eyes to see this, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're continuing our study in this book of 2 Peter. Uh, this morning, we're, in, we're going to look in the second part of this chapter 1. So I want to invite you to open up your Bibles with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. And again, if you're not sure where that is, you know, it's, it's towards the back. You can see right here. It's way towards the back. So if you get into 1 Peter, it's the next one. <laughs> If you get to 1 John, it's the one right before that, towards the, towards the end of the New Testament. So 2 Peter, I know I have in your, in your bulletins at, uh, verses 12 through 21, but really we're going to look at verses 16 through 21. So that's where I'm going to start. Would you please stand as we honor the reading of God's Word? For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to Him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with Him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts." Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is God's Word. Would you please have a seat? Well, as we have repeated often in this place that God indeed loves you just as you are, but we cannot stop with that. The idea is that God never leaves you just as you are. His love is power at work in you to change you from something that you once were into something that He designed you to be. That process is the process we think of as sanctification, where God is making you into uh, the conformity of His own image. It is a, it is a real process. It is it is an active work that is happening upon you, and it requires us to think, to be engaged in the process, to be sanctifying ourselves. Both Scripture says God sanctifies you, and you are to sanctify yourself. There is an aspect in the fact that He has revealed truth to us, and that truth is meant to lead us down a path in which we must actively walk. That is the idea. And that's what Peter is really talking about in the first part that we looked at last week. And it's such an important part. This second half of what we just read is, is really the evidence or the rationale or the reason why you need to listen to what Peter has just told you. He says, you need to confirm your calling and election. He doesn't say, he doesn't say make it. He doesn't say accomplish your calling and election. He says, you need to confirm it. If what you say you believe is really true, 
then it should be bearing evidence in your life. You know, we talked last week about the idea of what does it mean to be saved. It's a common phrase that we think about in, in, in Christianity or within the church that God saves you. And we think of salvation as something He saved us from. He saved us from the death that, is, that we owe at the end. He saved us from the judgment of God. We think of Jesus and the death that He offered on the cross, saved us from the judgment that we deserve. But last week, we were considering Peter's words and that there's, a, there's another piece of that. He didn't just save us from something, He saves us to something. And if, if you think of the way Jesus worded it about there is a narrow road and there is a wide road, and the wide road, which many are on, leads to death, and the narrow road, which few are on, leads to life, we can also think of salvation as not just that He has saved you from what lies at the end of that wide road of death, but He also puts you, takes you off of that road and puts you on a different road in which you are to walk. And so, when we are constantly put before us by the apostles all these tests or examinations to know, to, to make your calling and election sure, as Paul would write, or in here, to, to confirm your calling and election. The idea is to examine yourself to know which road are we walking along? Because one leads to death and one leads to life. And yes, it is God who has rescued us, but He's not just rescued us from what is at the end. He's, yet, he's rescued us from the power of that road altogether. He has picked you up from one road and He has put you on another, which means you are walking in a different way. Your life looks different. Now, that's, a, that's a, a challenging message because He's telling you to walk in a way that very few people are walking in this world. Therefore, it is going to put you in the crosshairs of the world. It's going to cause you to be scorned at times, ridiculed at times, to have to deny yourself the pleasures of what so many people are, seem to be enjoying. And In other words, it's a very challenging thing to start living in a way that doesn't agree with what the world says you are to live, how the world says you are to live. Now, as Jesus made Himself a target, was a threat, if you're following in Jesus' footsteps, you will make yourself a target. You will be seen as a threat, which is why Jesus says, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you, because you're walking along the same path upon which that I walk. Now, that is a very challenging thing, and if you think about first century readers, they're reading this, they're listening to this message, and they're asking themselves, well, why, if you're telling me to do something that's hard, if you're telling me to do something that potentially is going to cause me to be persecuted and denying myself all the things that people around me seem to be enjoying, why should I ever listen to you? And that's why he spells out this second part of this first chapter. This is why you should listen to me. And he offers two, two testaments, two witnesses, as it were. If you think about this a, a courtroom setting, why should you listen to me? Well, let me offer two important witnesses that give evidence to why what I'm saying is valid and true. And the first one is Peter himself and what he has experienced. And the second one he's going to point to is the testimony of the, of the Scriptures themselves. Those are, that's what he points to, and it's why this is such an important passage. It's a, it's a passage, especially the last couple of verses, that really give us an understanding of how we see the Scriptures themselves. How do we understand? How did the Scriptures get to us? 
And so we'll explore that a little bit. But those are the two witnesses, the, the, the testimony of Peter and what he's experienced and the testimony of Scripture and how it's been given. Those are the two witnesses that would, would give credence to why it is that we are to do what Peter says we are to do, to live the way Peter says that we are to live. Now, even before that, as he explains, some of those things in which he says we are to live, if we go back and look again at the, the first part of that, I just want to summarize real briefly uh, one particular wor- verse, or a couple of, uh, two particular verses. Boy, I should have underlined these or something. You guys will find them before me. Oh, where is that verse? The uh, save you. What? Help me out. Where is it? When he says he will save you from your sinful desire. There it is. Verse four. Sorry, I was looking later on. He's telling us the way he's calling us to live. He's saying, look. You have been made, you have become partakers of the divine nature, which last week we talked about, you know, the other writers would talk about as being filled with the Holy Spirit, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. He's saying you've become partakers of the divine nature. You have been filled with the Holy Spirit in such a way that the effect of that, it is that it is, you have escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. And we talked about a little bit about how He did that. He, he showed us something much more glorious that lies in our path that we are to pursue instead of what seems to be glorious in terms of what the world has to offer. There is something better, in other words, when we truly see what God has opened our eyes to see. You know, that was the story of the psalmist in Psalm 73. He looked at the wicked and the way they lived, and he envied them because it didn't seem like they had any problems. They experienced the joys of the world, and none of it made sense until he went into the sanctuary of God and he saw what lie lies at the end of their road, which was death, and he also experienced the presence of God, so much so, to such a degree that he said, that earth has nothing I desire besides you. And as we think about the way Peter is saying that here in verse 4, that you have escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire, that phrase, sinful desire, it's it's from actually just one word in the Greek language, epithemia. Thymia is actually the word for desire, and epi is a modifier. It's, it's one of those that, that gives extra emphasis to the word. It's not, it doesn't mean sinful. It doesn't even mean evil. It's just a modifier. And I've heard this explained before that it's, it's as if you're saying, He saved you from the corruption that exists as a result of an over-desire. An over-desire for what? An over-desire for anything that we experience other than God. So, well, instead of substituting a sinful desire, it means I'm, I'm escaping from a sinful desire to, I don't know, look at bad magazines or watch bad things or participate in bad activities. It's not that. It could be actually all these good things. He's saving me from an over-desire to succeed, an over-desire to have a healthy retirement, an over-desire to make my life comfortable, an over-desire to make sure that I'm safe, an over-desire to see my kids succeed. All of these things, by the way, we would say are very good things that we're encouraged to go after, but when they become ultimate things, there's an over-desire for them, and it leads to, as a result, which we may not understand it, but a corruption, a corruption. And He's saving us from the corruption of these over-desires. How does He do that? 
by giving us the grand vision of the greatness of the majesty and the glory that exists in the person of Jesus Christ to whom we are called to be like. Now, that is not something that we easily see because the world will never present that picture to you. It is why it is so important for us to be regular in the Word, to be regular in worship, to be reminded of this great and wonderful truth. Because as you go about in the way of the world, you will not see it because the world will not show it to you. But nonetheless, it is true. So walk in this way that seems very contrary to the way the world says to walk in. So why do we do that? One, the first part of that, before we even get into the witnesses themselves, you could say, well, why does it matter? Why does it matter? And here I want you to look at verse 11. For if you walk in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, those are some interesting words. For if you not believe these truths, it's not what he says. For in this way, this way in which you are walking, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Just as we said, you're on a road. And where does that salvation take place? It doesn't only take place in rescuing you from what lies at the end of the road. It it rescues you from the road itself, from walking on that road. So as you walk along that road, you will find yourself richly provided the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If we want to think of it in terms of stakes, those are the stakes. The stakes are high. You know, the, the... 17th century philosopher slash mathematician Blaise Pascal, you may be familiar with reading some of his, one of the famous things that he, that he uh, proposed was this idea of a wager. It's like a wager. It's, you know, Pascal's wager, if you've ever heard of that. It's not something that proves scientifically that there is a judgment. He's simply saying, look, we can't prove scientifically that there is a judgment at the end of your life, but you also cannot prove that there isn't. You can't prove one of those either way. So you could say, say, well, without any scientific evidence, all I can do is wager one way or the other. Well, what exactly am I wagering? On the one hand, you could say, well, if I walk the way of the world, or if I walk, if I walk the way of that Peter is calling me to walk, what am I wagering? I'm potentially, potentially risking not experiencing the, the joy that the world says I can enjoy not experiencing the pleasures the world says there is to experience. So there are real things that you are indeed turning away from. And if you're wrong, what have you lost? A finite degree of potential pleasure. Now, if you wage the other way, what have you lost? You've lost an infinite time in the presence of God. So the risk of one is finite, and the risk of the other is infinite. The risk of one is temporal, the risk of the other is eternal, which again is not necessarily a reason to believe Peter, but it certainly is a reason to 
consider what he has to say, because there's a lot at stake. There's a lot at stake. So what what does Peter offer is not only reasons to listen to him, but reasons why you can trust him. And the first part of this, he goes on to talk about his own experience. Peter's testimony itself is reason to listen to him. He, he, he begins this in verse 16, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we, make known, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to Him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with Him on the holy mountain." This is a reference to an experience that Peter had when Jesus asked he and James and John to go up on the mountain with him. And while they were up on this mountain, we can find one, uh, one recording of it in, in Mark chapter 9, when he took them up on the mountain and he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice out of the cloud, a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Well, that's happened, and now Peter's going before them, and he's explaining. We experienced this. We saw this. God Himself revealed to us that this person, Jesus Christ, is His appointed Son. That is our eyewitness testimony to you. Now, Peter's life also would seem to affirm this. If you think about who Peter is, because often we associate why we should listen with somebody by looking at their credentials and their past experiences. I mean, if we think about it in the world today, and people are telling us all kinds of different things, and so we want to ask, well, whose voice should we listen to? Who should we trust? Well, who has the credentials? Peter had no credentials. Peter was a fisherman. He was a common man. I mean, as we see the experience of Peter in Acts chapter 3 and 4, you know, in Acts chapter 3, Peter and John are going towards the temple, and they run into this lame beggar who asks them for money and says, money I don't have, but what I do have, I give to you. And he tells them in the name of Jesus Christ to be healed, and the man is suddenly healed. And he clings to them. And the authorities in the day, the the chief priests and the Sadducees, they see what's happening, and they are alarmed. They're threatened. Because what Peter is saying in response to this is that, how is this possible? Well, it's because Jesus Christ whom you crucified, (laughs) raised from the dead, and it is by His power that this man stands before you healed today. So, He is exposing their guilt, saying, you were the builders. He is the cornerstone that you have rejected. You builders have rejected. And now, that's a pretty condemning message. You can imagine it would make them feel a bit threatened. And so, they arrest Peter, and they put him in jail, Give him a chance the next day to give a hearing, which is when he says his famous thing, there is no other name under heaven by which men may be saved. And they take note, how is this guy able to have such authority? 
He's just, as they say, a common man with, who was uneducated. But then they add, but we take note that he has been with Jesus. Something about his experience on that mountain with Jesus Christ, when God revealed to him who it was, has had a profound effect on his life. Now, granted, he didn't quite understand at the time he saw all that. It did have to work itself out. He did need the Holy Spirit to come and remind him of all he had seen after the resurrection of Christ and understand exactly what was happening. But once he did, that so radically changed Peter from being this man who was locked in fear away up in the upper room when Jesus himself was carried away and crucified, the man who denied knowing Jesus when Jesus was on trial for fear that he would be associated with him and go through the same thing. Now this man is boldly speaking out in the name of Jesus Christ, knowing that he will have a target on his back if he does. What was different about this man? What gives this man authority to speak? His life and his eyewitness. His eyewitness, which is made credible by the life that he's living, by the change that has taken place. So that's the first thing. The second thing he points to is the Scriptures themselves. And this is where we have the famous passage that maybe you've heard before. In verse 20 and 21, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Here we have testimony to the... the by the way, the Scriptures are a reference to the Old Testament. That would have been the Scriptures of the time in the first century when Peter was speaking. And he's talking about this Old Testament body of books that we have was not delivered to us by the will of man. It was delivered to us by men as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, that has all kinds of implications for the significance of Scripture. And I can't expound all those in the course of one sermon, so I'll simply make reference to you. I've actually... I'm putting, I will put a link on uh, this sermon, if you go to our website, to the Westminster Confession of Faith. If you go read the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 1, it really goes through and expounds the doctrine of Scripture itself. Let me just say this about it. You know, the doctrine, the doctrine of Scripture, the veracity of it, the trustworthiness of us, is validated both by internally reading the message itself and externally by the number of copies that are extant and how readily they agree with each other. There is no other ancient historical document that even comes remotely close to the number of copies that we have of the Old Testament Scriptures, which would validate the historicity of them, the ancientness of them. In terms of internal testimony of the Scriptures, you think about how many different contributors there were to the books of the Bible, from Moses to the prophets, some of the prophets who were fishermen, shepherds, kings, priests. And they didn't just write from one time period. They wrote all across many, many centuries, over a thousand years. They wrote from three different continents, Moses being in Egypt, in the North Africa, much of them being in the Middle East, in Asia, and Paul perhaps writing from Europe. So we have men writing from various con con continents, writing from different centuries, writing from different backgrounds and experiences and professions. And yet, as you align all of their works up, 
there is an internal consistency to all of them, which unfolds a message that certainly looks by design to be leading in a very intentional direction. None of whom, with one of those men individually, could have known the rest of the story. And so it bears witnesses to the validity of the book. In, in, in fact, if you consider the words of Isaiah, Isaiah gives us the test, how do we know if you should listen to a prophet or not? Well, if he tells you something that's going to happen in the future, if he makes a prophecy and it doesn't come true, he's revealed himself to be a false prophet and you ought to stone him. <laughs> but if what he says is true then it is validating the rest of what he is saying, and you need to listen to him. Now, the reason why Peter is bringing this up, by the way, when he's talking about the importance of the Old Testament, because he says this, bridging the gap between his testimony and the Old Testament, he says in verse 19, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. He's saying, look, the Old Testament lays out a bunch of prophecies, and what we have to you in the message that we are preaching is a confirmation of the prophecies. That's what he's saying. All of these prophecies that found in the Old Testament, the major ones especially that speak about the, one, the way in which God is going to ultimately bring about, finally, His plan of redemption, which, by the way, if you think about what is the theme of the whole Bible itself, all these men contributed, what is the theme of the whole Bible? was the story of redemption. How is God going to save a people that were lost? That's what the Bible is. And He reveals that little by little as we go through the Scriptures with prophecies that are pointing to the future of how He's going to accomplish that. So all the way back in the beginning in the book of Genesis, after Adam and Eve had, had fallen by listening to the serpent and God came down and questioned them and brought judgment upon first Adam and then Eve and then the serpent. He said some words that are often called the first pronouncement of the gospel when He says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Your seed will crush His heel, but her seed, the seed of the woman that is, will crush your head. The seed of the woman would ultimately crush the head of the serpent while having His heel struck and injured. And we have the word more fully confirmed, Peter says. It says, I'm going to tell you who the seed of the woman is. It's Jesus Christ. And as the serpent struck Him on that cross, killing Him, thinking He'd struck a mighty blow, it only accomplished to take away the very power of the serpent Himself as Jesus rose from the dead, striking the serpent in the head. For what was the power of the devil? It was the power to go before God and say to Him, this person and this person and this person is guilty, and they deserve to be judged and sent into eternal punishment. But when Jesus hung on that cross as an innocent man representing His people, the death blow that was put upon Him was the death sentence that we were sentenced to. So when that adversary, your adversary, stands before God and says he is guilty, and God says, yes, but I've already sentenced, that judgment has already been carried out. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because the sentence was already carried out. The seed of the woman has crushed the seed of the serpent. 
But the prophecy goes on, he says. The prophecies go on as we continue to see, for example, in the person of Abraham. Abraham was promised that he and his descendants will become a great nation, that they will be God's people and God will be their God. This promise is for you and for your children. The problem was Abraham didn't have any children, and he's getting old. And his wife's getting old, and they're thinking, hmm, God gave us His promise, but nothing's happening. Maybe we should take matters into our own hands. So Sarah offers him her maidservant, Hagar, and he has a child with Hagar. They name him Ishmael. And now they're thinking God can fulfill His promises, and God comes specifically and says, it will not be through Ishmael that my promise comes to fruition. It will be from a child that Sarah herself gives birth to. The problem with that was Sarah was well past her childbearing years. And so when she hears that, she laughs because it's impossible. The point was it was the son of promise who would be the one to bring that blessing to the world. Who was that son of promise? Well, there was another one born of a miraculous birth to a virgin as a result of prophecy through whom the world would be blessed. We go on, prophet like Moses. Moses says, God will raise up a prophet like me from among your own people. Listen to him. Well, what kinds of things did Moses do? Moses brought people to the mountain where God delivered His Word. Jesus took His people on the mountain to reveal to Him that He is the living Word. Moses was leading the people to the mountain so that they could dwell in the presence of God. Well, Jesus came as God to dwell with His people. Moses led God's people out of their bondage to the false idols of the world. Jesus came to give us deliverance from the false idols that our world puts in our face and says, live this way, serve these idols. David was promised when he wanted to build a temple for the Lord The Lord comes back through the prophet Nathan and says, you will not build me a house, your son will build me a house, and I will establish his throne forever. Well, Jesus is the son that came as the son of David to establish God's throne forever. Even as we say in the Apostles' Creed, he ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God our Father Almighty. So you see what he's doing, what Peter is saying is, we have the Word more fully confirmed. You've read all these things in the Old Testament that pointed you to a promised one that God would send to save His people from their sin, and I'm here to tell you, this is who it is. So listen to me. (laughs) Stop living as though you're walking on the path that leads to death and live in a way that is on the path to life and godliness. For He has given you everything necessary to live a life of godliness. We live defeated lives too often as the excuse, oh, well, we're just sinners, we're just human beings. Of course, we're we're not capable of exercising self-control, as He says, or steadfastness or brotherly affection or virtue. He says, on the contrary, you are. You have been made partakers of the divine nature. As Paul says, you've been filled with the Holy Spirit. 
You do have everything you need to live a life of godliness. Now, that doesn't mean we're not going to fall once in a while. But overall, we are to, to look at our lives and say, is it characterized as a whole by a life of godliness or a life of utter defeat? Does it look like those who are on the path towards godliness, or does it look like those who are on the path towards worldliness and death? That's kind of the question. Not that your walking in a godly way saves you. That's already happened. And by the way, even as you read things like Psalm 19, as we quoted in our Confession of Faith, or Psalm 19, which we use in our call to worship this morning, those are both psalms that really expound the nature of the Scriptures. And they can sound very works-oriented in some ways. But you have to remember they were given to a people who had already been rescued from their sin. That's why they can be as, as, as lovely as what honey from the honeycombs or greater than any gold. Not because they're telling you how to be rescued, because they're telling you how to walk because you're rescued. So we have a Savior that has confirmed all of the prophecies in the Old Testament, who not only rescues us from the sentence of death, but the corrupt nature that brought that about. We can live godly lives, so let's do so. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful for the Word of God and Peter's testimony and what you did in his life to reveal to Him that indeed Your Son is Your Son, the one appointed to fulfill all these great and powerful prophecies that will bring about the saving, the rescuing, the redemption of Your people, a salvation that not only saves us from what lies at the end, but also the path that we were once walking. For You have replaced our hearts of stone and given us hearts of flesh. You have, you have allowed us access to Your very presence Lord, help us not to take this lightly, but to walk in a way that pleases You. In Jesus' name, amen.